On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Bit of a variety this morning on the front pages of the Sunday, news, uh, Sunday newspapers. Rather, We'll start with the Sunday Independent. Fine Gael under fire as turf war escalates. The coalition turf war has escalated this weekend after the Green Party privately accused Fine Gael of trying to, quote, outdo the Healy Rays with its opposition to Eamon Ryan's solid fuel regulations. The Sun Independent can reveal that Minister, Mr Ryan, the Environment Minister, intends to push ahead with plans to bland the, smale, bland the sale of commercial smoky fuels, including smoky coal, turf and wet wood, contrary to claims last week that the Minister was mulling concessions. Uh, while his officials are still working on the regulations, the plan remains that small rural communities of under 500 people will be exempt from any ban on selling and gifting of turf to neighbours and friends under measures which are due to come into effect by September the 1st. This comes despite Micheál Martin telling the Dáil last week that there will be no ban on the use of turf in rural Ireland and there will be no ban for the remainder of the year. It was a bit of a shock to see the party of Gareth Fitzgerald take such a populist line where they seem to be trying to outdo Matty McGrath and the Healy Rays, a Green Party source said of Fine Gael. The party talks a great talk when it comes to the environment, but it was a bit of an eye-opener to see their response when it came to tackling air pollution. Another Green Party source within government said, there is a rump of four to five within Fine Gael and three to four within Fianna Fáil who are determined to out-Healy Ray the Healy Rays. And if they're let away with it consistently, especially on climate stuff and public transport and all of that, you are going to have problems. Former Rural Affairs Minister Michael Ring last Tuesday mounted an extraordinary attack on Mr Ryan, accusing him of being great for bluff and describing the population limit as a daft idea. Uh, also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, anti-vaccination conspiracist Antonio Moredu will not face criminal charges in connection with a gravely ill COVID patient's departure from hospital in Donegal last year. Joe McCarran, 67, returned to Letterkenny University Hospital two days after leaving, but subsequently died from the illness. Garda headquarters has confirmed that the state prosecutor has now advised Gardaí that no criminal charges will be laid. Front page of the Business Post this morning, another exclusive Red Sea poll carried out by that newspaper. Sinn Féin has reached a record high support level in today's Business Post Red Sea poll as two-thirds of people have said that the cost of living crisis had left them with little to no disposable income. The poll findings come as a rapid rise in inflation in recent months has increased the financial strain on households. They found that 63% said that they had little to no disposable income left due to the cost of rising uh, cost of living crisis and a total of 73% said that they started to buy cheaper food to reduce their weekly shopping bill. 50% now said that they had to use savings or credit to pay for ordinary everyday living expenses and 68% of people say their quality of life has reduced due to the higher cost of living. 50% of people have to borrow or dip into their savings uh, to make ends meet on a day-to-day basis. That's pretty striking. Uh, also on the front page of the Business Post James Manfield Jr. and his brother Patrick James Manfield are being investigated over their alleged involvement in a 7 million euro corporate fraud scheme targeted at the Revenue Commissioners the CAB has alleged in a High Court affidavit and also the Central Bank has found that Philip Lynch the former Chief Executive of IAWS and 151 engaged in insider trading in shares of CNC the publicly listed drinks company that's also the front page story of the Sunday Times this morning which says that the conviction or the rather the finding is the first time that's ever happened in the history of the state says that Philip Lynch accepted a fine of €75,000 from the Central Bank of Ireland and disqualification from being involved in a regulated financial services company for five years this is punishment for contravening market abuse regulations while he was the director of CNC which also makes Bulmer's cider 
Also on the front page of the Sunday Times, uh, we learned that Ukrainian refugees who bring pets with them when fleeing to Ireland are being refused access by some hotels and accommodation centres that don't accept cats or dogs. Several refugees said last week that they've been forced to find alternative accommodation outside the state system because of the restrictions. Uh, front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday, cycling hero Stephen Roach has been ordered to pay €750,000 after a Spanish court found that he negligently bankrupted his own Marbella firm and plundered its assets to finance a luxury lifestyle, the Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal. Uh, but I want to go back to the Sunday Times for the first story that I want to discuss this morning, which is a front page column by Neil Francis, the rugby writer and commentator, who says that in the recent past... A school was knocked out of the Leinster Senior Cup and the team, coaches, uh, teachers and parents went to a pub to celebrate the rugby year. A colleague who had a son of the team was there and at one point he went into the men's bathrooms. When he walked in, at least seven of the players were snorting cocaine. The sang fraud displayed by these 16 and 17 year olds was shocking. They continued to snort the powder right in the middle of the room with the coaches, teachers and rest of the parents outside blissfully unaware of what was going on just a couple of metres away. That's all I can say about the incident, says Neil Francis. Apart from the fact that my information is first hand and if it was true, if some rugby schools are doing cocaine, are not the GAA schools and football schools of Ireland doing it too? which is a question posed by Neil France on the front page. Uh, we are joined in studio by John Lee, who's the executive editor uh, of the Irish and Sunday uh, Mail on Sundays, and also by Gronin the A, who I usually introduce as a reporter with the journal.eu, who will be starting tomorrow uh, as a reporter with the Press Association. So congratulations on the new gig, Gronin, and uh, best luck with the new thing. Um, are you at all struck by... Does this surprise you, I suppose, is the question that I want to ask? Because in a way, it should be shocking that 16 and 17-year-olds would be openly consuming cocaine in a pub after a sports fixture. And yet there's something about it which doesn't surprise me all that much. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, But I would also be cautious about... Um, assuming that it is widespread, you know that comment about it's a, it must be happening in GAA schools and and mm. that as well. Even in other rugby schools, I'd be cautious about you know attributing this as a wide scale problem because of one first hand experience, which is what we're all prone to be doing sometimes. But I will say that like because if 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 drugs usage or or you know class a drugs in this case is um widespread in the adult population it is inevitable that it will trickle down to younger generations and particularly the way um cocaine is kind of advertised in a lot of way on tv as a, as a kind of a a lifestyle thing or an identity thing um and a way of fitting in you you can see how teenagers would get sucked into that uh, there's a piece obviously in the inside uh, of that paper, I think on page four of the Sunday Times, where it goes into the kind of it doesn't have say the same antidepressant um, zap of energy that alcohol would if you if, mm. if you were to take those drugs. But I'm I'm brought back to when um, Keen Mulready Woods, that t- the young teenager from Drogheda, was killed and dismembered um, in early 2020, and the conversation we had around then was that is the uh, that is the consequence of of the demand for class A drugs, and that is what it always has to mm. come back to. We have to link the uh, the usage of drugs, kind of uh, in a very real sense, to the real world consequence that it has on vulnerable people in the community and how powerful it makes criminal gangs. Yeah, uh, you mentioned there that it's always dangerous to extrapolate a full societal phenomenon from from one instance. But Neil Francis does go into a little bit more detail. He says that some schools know that there is an issue because a number of them employ companies to send sniffer dogs into the locker rooms and the common areas during the academic year. He says there is a merry-go-round of troublesome kids who are caught with cocaine or other drugs and expelled. They then get a second and third chance with other schools to which they're sent for a fresh start. Several rugby clubs are known for having a marching powder tradition. 
There is one club in Dublin where literally the entire squad is using cocaine and has a supplier on board, he writes. And the amateur game is a hotbed for cocaine and while it is merely prevalent here, usage is rampant in the UK. He goes on to say the top 14 club competition in France. That's basically the the French equivalent of of the URC. It's the top level uh, rugby competition in France. Is thought to be one of the drug dealers' favourite markets. Uh, Again, John Lee, uh, I don't know whether I'm all that surprised by this. Because I seem to remember there being other reporting before that it was now rampant in GAA clubhouses, for example, because as Grony just said there, it, some people like it as an alternative to alcohol because it doesn't have that uh, antidepressant uh, angle and because they would argue you've got a clearer head the next morning. So they argue that it's almost a more constructive thing to be doing than taking drinks. Um, not constructive for your heart, I'd say. Mm. Um, I went to a rugby school um, many years ago, probably before cocaine took hold. And I can assure you, either I was on the not on the cool gang or um, I played principally soccer there was none of this going on it's 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 a fascinating read and Neil Francis would know far more about the rugby fraternity than I yeah but it is not um it, it, it is not traditional news reporting it, mm. you know a lot of this is is second hand third hand conversation the nate the very nature I'm not undermining the article I'm just saying the very nature of something like illicit drug use and its discussion means you aren't fully supported by by statistics. There's no mention of the involvement of the Guardian in this. Yeah. Um, so, so it's hard. It's not your standard front page Sunday newspaper fare because it's slightly driven more by anecdote rather than full data. Well, and, and I say he's a far he's a far um, more um, detailed understanding of the rugby fraternity than I. So you know. Um, it's it's just a difficult one to get your head around as to how much of it is going on. Mm. It's a small number of schools. Um, you are then focusing on a small group of educational establishments and what they could possibly be doing or not mm. doing about all this. But obviously, it seems to be prevalent. Cocaine is, is prevalent in society in a way that it wasn't. And it's a very interesting discussion about its use relative to alcohol. Yeah, well, I think that um, that's probably maybe where the, where the real value of this piece is because even if you sort of remove the, the rugby culture question from it and like you say, Neil Francis is obviously a very uh, very well-versed commentator in that area but by his own admission he says he doesn't know whether it goes on in GA clubs or soccer clubs but I suppose it does speak to a, a broader issue that if Class A drugs are now so freely acceptable that they would be openly done in teenage circles almost preferential to having a covert drink in a clubhouse on a weekend evening. That, that in itself is an awful lot, John, does it not? Of course it does. Of course it does. But there's... there, um, You bring yourself back to questioning what exactly has been done about it, if it is, if it is so pre- prevalent. There are traditional ways of dealing with, with uh, illegal drug use. And that's the guardie. That's going in and... If this is going on, mm. information should be brought to the guard, the guardie, and and it, something should be done about it. You know, it's not, it's not. Um, I'm sure there won't be a blasé re- reaction to this. Yeah. But if there is a large group of kids doing coke in a in, in a in a bathroom. It's pretty easily stopped also. Yeah, uh, I, I'm wary of, of reading out too much from the article because I'd like it to be if people are interested in it that obviously they can read the full thing themselves. But there's one particular passage that I want to read out and I'm wary in reading it that it may almost sound like it's an advertisement. But what I want to read is just maybe Neil Francis's rationale for why it is preferred among some circles. Yeah, He says, What is profoundly disturbing is that many children and adolescents find the body beautiful is something that they aspire to 
And that's why cocaine is popular, he writes. If you were a male and you're out for the night, why would you drink seven or eight pints when the net result is a hangover and an inability to work the next day? That beer also goes to the bottom line, your gut, and that's anathema to any self-serving, uh, self-respecting youngster who craves a sculpted body. Cocaine is also an appetite suppressant, which makes it especially attractive to some girls. You get the hift, but a uh, hit but not the heft, which, which is a, a really, really dispiriting, it's almost despairing line growing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, I I was I was watching this show, Euphoria, recently, which kind of portrays drug use among young people. And I think what it does really well is it shows the attractiveness of drugs, but it also shows the impact on your on the family and the friends of that person in equal okay. measure, in a kind of a stylish way. It does not glorify the drug taking, but it flashes back to say, you know, even though it kind of numbs kind of certain anxieties this young person might have, it also flashes back to an overdose and how serious that can be. And okay. I think that's important when we're talking about, um, you know, kind of why it's attractive and why people are doing it, because that's part of the reason you can tackle that kind of issue to say on the same scale, it can ruin a lot of people's lives. And a lot of people turn to it um, to kind of supplement gaps, say, in supports from another aspect. So, for example, when you say an appetite suppressant, that is a lack of support from a mental health um, uh, perspective to help girls have a a better uh, and healthier view of their own bodies and their own self-image. So those are the kind of ways, you know, we're talking about the involvement of Gardaí, absolutely. But when you look at why kids are turning to them, it is helpful to look at them and try and supplement those kind of the, the job or the task that drugs are doing mm. for them. That's I think that's the uh, that's a kind of a constructive takeaway to take away from because what well, else can you do? You know, drugs are going to be prevalent all the time. Well, I think in fairness to Neil Francis, if you go into the piece, which is which is a long kind of news feature on um, on page four of the Sunday Times, he he very much gets into the negative. Sorry, like you just uh, sorry, your microphone, John. Thank uh, you. So many newspapers here in front of me. Um, he gets very much into the the negative aspects of drug taking. And um, and po- points out that our children, as as these people are, um, can't they cannot take mind altering drugs and all the, and all the physical problems that come with it. So when it, when you say the guardie have to deal with this, kids are the kids, young people take drugs out of ignorance. They don't understand the long term effects of clearly they don't if they're mm. if they're taking them. Um of course there's an iconoclastic and there's a there's a rebel um inclination towards doing it. But the long term effects, which Neil Francis does go into in this piece, are going to destroy them short term. What he doesn't go into probably in as much length um, as the health um, uh, uh, ramifications of drug taking, class A drug taking, are addiction issues. Mm. And cocaine is completely different from alcohol in the sense that it is rapidly uh, prone to addiction. And it is a it is a very very strong chemical that was that was invented for for, for par, far different reasons than uh, recreational take mm. uh, drug taking. Uh, but one thing that what I'm particularly struck by when it, it makes that point about the uh, impact that it has on your physical body, Grony, is that if it's become something of a drug of choice for for teenage girls because they're body conscious and they want to take something which gives them a high but doesn't leave any obvious sort of yeah. visual physical residue then then it speaks a lot to the, the culture that they feel that they have to subscribe to that as well and it reminds me of in school I remember um, girls would smoke for the same reason would take up smoking for a similar reason as an appetite suppression like the nicotine mm. gives you a satisfaction 
um, that eating a meal would and that would help keep kind of uh, appetite at bay. It's a similar kind of argument, I suppose. And that's again going back to, well, there needs to be kind of an, an education or a um, a support for particularly teenage girls, particularly with the prevalence of social media and how fake everybody can look like that or how easily everyone can manicure this image that they are perfect uh, online. Um, But just on the, you know, it's hard to argue with a teenager or a young person the long-term bad effects something might have because at that age, you think everything in a very short-term way. Mm. You know, you're stressed out about maybe not, you know, your love life at a very young age, even though you've got your whole life ahead of you. It is really hard to... um, convey how young people are at that age and how do they do have so much ahead of them and the long, you know the effects of what taking drugs might have on your 30s or 40s they're not thinking that far ahead at yeah. all so it's difficult um, I'm going to read actually ordinarily this would be a review of, of the Sunday papers that have just been published on the day but there is a piece that this harks back to um, which uh, has crossed my mind I wanted to read out a little bit it's from uh, March 2020 which is uh, a month better remembered for uh, unfortunately lots of other reasons um, but that month there was a piece published in the Irish Independent by um, Ewan McKenna the sports writer that people might be familiar with and it was about the culture of uh, cocaine use in GAA clubs and I want to read just a little passage out of it because it just does widen the debate beyond what Neil Francis is writing about rugby today. Um, an extract from Ewan's piece goes as follows. As a guard in the capital, Alan Lynch was never naive as to the cocaine epidemic in Ireland, or at least he presumed that he wasn't. Originally from me, he'd long since transferred clubs to the capital, but back in 2019, he got a call from his old team back home. They wanted his advice about the cocaine issue. It turns out that I may have been naive around that aspect of it after all, Lynch admits. The assumption had long been that the local GAA club was the sanctuary from such ills rather than the way into such ills. It was the cure rather than any aid to any disease. And thus it bothered him hugely, but it turns out that he was far from alone. In December in the gym and merely shooting the breeze, he harmlessly asked the guy in the next machine about how his club in Wicklow was faring. If we could keep the young lads off of the coke, we'd have a great chance, came the blunt reply. The more Lynch looked, the more he realised how much had been hiding in plain view all along. A colleague from his from Ulster mentioned how the players in his club were often in the local and walking right by him despite his job, into the toilets and then back out as if it was simply like having a pint. The publican there actually got so frustrated that he grabbed a screwdriver and took the toilet door from the hinges so that he could see in. Such was the level of prevalence of cocaine usage in the GA community, all of which, I suppose, to, to take it away from of sport and to, to broader societal issues, and we'll, we'll draw a line under after this, John, is that... As you mentioned, if there's a serious addiction issue for people who are only 16, 17, 18, young adults, and they're consuming drugs in such a casual, cavalier way, and they are so addictive, it does make you a little bit fearful about what might be coming three or four or five years down the road if this is a ladder that they're already on. Exactly, Gavin. You know, I was um, just thinking there wasn't, when I was... um a kid playing football and I played right into probably nearly my 40s there wasn't much um, there wasn't much cocaine around there was a lot of alcohol and we knew very little about it we knew very little I didn't even know back then you know this might sound crazy that they should put on weight from a few points I just thought you know you went to the pub you um, had a few jars after a game got completely out of habit you were young you probably played again the next day so I do feel much as it may seem futile and much as we may view the average 16, 17 year old um, as you know iconoclastic and a rebel and they're doing this because it doesn't have that amount of effect on we were able to educate young people about alcohol over the last 20, 30 years and surely some efforts to um, to educate on what coke could do to your heart um, um, you know 
take very high profile sportsmen like Diego Maradona yeah. what he did to his life mm. what it did to his career um, he still was the greatest footballer of all time but was finished by the age of 28 really um, so you know it can, it, can, it can be dealt with but if if we and we we should not um, disbelieve what's been said here. If there's six or seven kids in a, in in a, in a bathroom uh, taking coke, that can be dealt with, surely, or maybe it can't. Yeah, and we well, throw our it hands can be dealt up. with if, if it's in isolation. But, but if if it's if it's endemic of what's going on in every sports clubhouse in the country, then maybe not. I think this ties back to though that the clamping down on the Kinnahan gang as well on an international basis. Um, when you were saying like when we're saying how prevalent it is, that is to do with a certain amount of power of gangs in the country mm. and like that, that 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 reaches so far into um, a rugby club's dressing uh, you know dressing room mm. or a GAA dressing room that is that is the power of the, you know the, a, a cr- criminal gangs essentially and what t- a teenager can kind of uh, resist kind of the marketing power yeah. or the the, yeah. the power the push that these gangs have. Yeah. Uh, somebody has taken up your reference to Euphoria in texting to five three one zero six, and they're wondering, can I go into a deep dive about the comparisons between Euphoria and Skins, which they said glamorised the use of alcohol? <laughs> uh, I haven't seen Euphoria because I'm now old and square, so I haven't had a chance to do that. So maybe, maybe we'll do it some other time. We'll get Cronia back to do a, a full deep dive of teen dramas. Uh, it is Gavin Riley with you on the record eleven twenty three this morning. Much more from the papers with Cronia and John in just a moment. There is an extensive excerpt. In today's Sunday Independent, uh, from a book being published this week by uh, Hugh O'Connell and Jack Horgan Jones, the book is called Pandemonium, uh, Power Politics and Ireland's Pandemic. It's a look inside uh, government buildings and beyond as uh, various figures try to wrestle with the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, as I said, an extensive extract on pages 14 and 15 of the uh, Sunday Independent today. And what is striking about this extract is that this was on the, at the outset of the Omicron variant where there obviously was some hope that it would be a mild variant, but we certainly knew it spread quicker and couldn't necessarily compare uh, South Africa's experience to what Ireland was going to have. And the extraordinary lengths, Gronia, that uh, some figures went to to try and out a leaker rather than necessarily prioritising the public health response to all of this. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, there was obviously a lot of time at the er, talk at the time when things were leaked, particularly because everybody wanted to know what the next phase of the pandemic would be and what rules we'd have to be living by. But yeah, there's a quite an interesting excerpt about the the last lockdown, basically, on the eve of uh, 2022 uh, and about an official for Neffet cycling an eight minute journey from Bagot Street to the Department of Taoiseach to hand um, deliver a letter because that was the extent that they didn't trust mm. people not to leak and they didn't know where the leak was coming from. Can I just um, interrupt to say that I don't know how that is a leak proof measure at all because <laughs> if you're delivering one physical copy of the letter the letter still has to be then copied to each of the three coalition leaders and obviously the Minister for Health already has it as well and then there are whole phalanx of advisors and communication staff and everyone else so Sending it in hard copy, I don't think, makes it any necessarily more leak-proof well, than a soft copy would have been. It's interesting you say that because I was reading it and one was handed to Stephen Donnelly's driver, another was... So there was two copies, essentially, <laughs> as well. That was already getting out of hand. That's but, never um, heard of a photocopier, like, clearly, you know. But, yeah, it's, it's just kind of... I mean, I think it showed how much mistrust there was uh, within government and between government and NAFIT about how stressed they were, about how things could go wrong. You know, the piece basically detailed exactly what details came out when and when that might or what that might tell us about where the leak comes from and I think, uh, you know, the 
the kind of summation of it all was it's not as simple as it seems. The truth was more complicated and that there is suggestion that it was probably from both sides that mm. various information was coming from. And that, um, you know, I think when you look at the whole of the government uh, and the issue of leaks, it happens all the time. And particularly to journalists, that is just kind of the nature of the job. Um, I had to laugh out loud. I think John thought I'd gone mad in the room next door before he came on air no. at the line that said Neffet <laughs> well, had, had undermined and disrespected or, uh, the Tarnish just said at one point that Neffet had undermined and disrespected the Taoiseach by assumedly he was assuming that they'd leaked things when Leo Varadkar had a name for himself for announcing <laughs> policy decisions before the Taoiseach had the chance to yeah. do it. Himself. Uh, and, a, so. and a man, let's not be sort of too, too light there about it, a man who's also being investigated over the consequences of some high profile leaking that he himself admits to doing as well. Um, one of the things which is most striking, though, about uh, these whole events, this is of December the 2nd, 2021, is that in order to try and identify the source of some leaks, because there was a, a suspicion that some me- members of Neffet were maybe more prone to letting slip the details of the discussions, um, was that, uh, and I'm going to try and find the exact paragraph here. Uh, where is it? It's this one, yes. Um, ahead of the Neffet meeting earlier that day, Houlihan and others in Neffet, including Ronan Glynn, decided how to smoke out the mole. It was decided that Houlihan would put up a slide displaying on screen the measures that would form part of his letter, including a proposal to cut capacity on public transport to 50%. But that proposal never made it into the letter. Indeed, it was never under consideration. The question was, having been shown to the meeting, would the bogus recommendation then be leaked? And this is where uh, our studio guest this morning, John Lee uh, of the Irish Daily Mail comes in because (laughs) then you get named a few paragraphs later. Do you, want, do you want to tell the class why? I feel I feel like that that part of the movie, the jerk, when he finds his name in the phone book. It's a big uh, a big thrill for me to see myself in the Sunday Independent. After all these years, <laughs> I finally made it, Mark. I did work there. I did work there. Yeah, but by like, um, it, it's it's an extract from the book, so I'm sure the book goes into a, a far more, and it's 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 a, it's a thrilling extract, and often you take out the most newsworthy um, part of it. Mm. I. I to be honest with you, I wasn't even aware that fifty percent wasn't in it in until <laughs> yeah, I read it. So, now. so what, what um, is then alleged is that um, the it was kind of it was, you, you in the following morning in the, in the Irish Daily Mail had the the full details of what had been discussed, or at least what what you understood to have been discussed at the Neffet meeting, and one of the measures that you'd included in your reporting, which you also very kindly shared on the Tonight Show on Virgin Media Television yes. the previous evening, was that there was going to be this fifty percent cap on public transport capacity, uh, which it turns out was not there. That was the recommendation which had been deliberately included on Tony Hulahan's slide as a ruse to try and smoke out what he thought was the leak. I think I, I think we always flag these. Um, I, I don't think I ever said I had the letter anyway either. But I can't I, I can't remember there was so much, there was so much breaking news going on during all yeah. of this. Mm. They're always that, that, that was an attempt. If they were, and we can't doubt Hugh O'Connell and Jack Horgan Jones, if they were doing this as a as a an attempt to smoke out a leaker, it, one would think they should have had better things to do with themselves. Uh, this this I, is what strikes me, to be honest. That like when, <laughs> when you've got Omicron coming and you've got another Christmas on the way. Do you not have more things on your mind than trying to identify the source of a leak when, when it, like, Neffet had, what, 40 plus members? Because it was ne- never going to be entirely watertight. And then you're handing it over to a government that has 15 cabinet ministers, five super juniors, and a whole phalanx of about 50 or 60 special advisors. So word gets around, not to mention all the civil servants and other communication staff that are involved anyway. So the idea of being able to keep all of this 
under lock and key always struck me as being highly fanciful and that people were really unnecessarily stressing to think otherwise Absolutely and it's all a leak if if, if one was to be involved in the construction of the news as the three of us are you know there are there are high minded leaks that come about um, the the increased the increased capacity of a certain hospital that are given to select news programs uh, on a, a eleven o'clock on a Monday night and it's out at nine o'clock in the morning. That's a leak, you know. They're all leaks. Mm. It's it's how the government just uh, distrib- distri- distributes its information. What what this says to me is that there was a we were working on a pandemic. We'd never done this before. Um, civil servants were given an extraordinary amount of power, rightly or wrongly, they were. And they felt it was okay to go on news programs without filtering the distribution of their opinions through the government press office, um, through the political masters, which was is the time-honoured way of doing it. In the past, there was a tradition where civil servants weren't permitted to speak to the media at all. Mm. Uh, and, and this came about. So, yeah, if, if, if the distribution of that information then became a little, a little out of control, well, they were all responsible for it but you know yeah. bring ourselves back none of that actually mattered no um, and what what those civil servants did and what the government did was handle our pandemic very well I think in the long run um, the excess deaths in this country were low um, uh, lockdown was harsh yes but I think ultimately our our vaccine programme was one of the most successful in the world. Certainly the initial phase of it was. And they have great successes to clap themselves in the back. And I think I think for a lot of people it's a bit sad the way it all ended for Tony Holohan. Mm. But um, this kind of got around trying to catch the leaker and, and playing Hercule Poirot was not their skill. Yeah. It's a skill of very few. Well, uh, of course, I should say then that, of course, as you say, with the three of us in the room being involved in news construction, of course, we are not going to condemn leaks because leaks are the currency of our trade and often the information that we carry is information that someone somewhere would rather not be in the public domain but um, anyway, nonetheless after this, this leak happened and of course the information by the way the, the article also says uh, the, the extract today points out that there was at least one government source that was already briefing on the contents of what the government was likely to sign off on anyway so it's not mm-hmm. as if all of the leaking was only coming uh, from Neffet and Neffet only but nonetheless the extract tells us Leo Varadkar was furious. He let rip, accusing Neffet of acting in a political manner. He said it was unacceptable that the government had been put in a position where it had no alternative but to do what public health officials had recommended. It was clear to those in the room and on the screen that Varadkar was angry and annoyed that decisions were out in the public domain before they had been discussed. He said Neffet had undermined and disrespected the Taoiseach. Now, aside from the the bits of irony in there, I have never understood, Gráinne, in the course of the entire pandemic, how we get the perception that, oh, if the proposal is out there, that means that ministers are bounced into it. Like I, I don't, I don't think that the level of public expectation was so overwhelming that if something gets out on a Sunday night or a Thursday night before it's discussed by cabinet, that suddenly how ministers are bounced into it. Did they not have the gumption or the prerogative to go, no, nah, not having that? Well, I think the problem is that they probably, if if Neffet recommends something that the public generally would be happy, they might not be happy that they have to do it, but they would trust that it has to be done. Um, whereas, it, whereas the government can't say, the government say, yes, that's out there and we don't want to go with that mm. a la Christmas 2020 well, when, we, but when, we did also have October 2020 when Neffet recommended something sorry, and ministers yes. very pointedly said exactly. thanks but no thanks exactly so what I mean. there was an established uh, they, culture of them saying no But the, exactly and and I think they kind of um, that happened but they were also criticised that to be fair af- after Christmas that was always brought back to them that you, you did this you went to get Neffet's advice in fairness they were also told you've gone be- against their advice before why won't you do it again this time but I think if you, if you think of the opposite imagine 
imagine the Neffet advice wasn't leaked. The government then went against their decision in private and, you know, the public at large didn't know that Neffet advised the opposite, say, of what the government had decided on. That's actually not good for the public or for the decision or the response to the COVID-19 pandemic either for us not to know if the government were going to go against Neffet advice, it's best for us to know that it is against a team of public health advisors who by and large did make difficult um, and correct decisions throughout the pandemic. They made mistakes on masks and antigen tests, of course. Um, but by and large, that they did, they were a voice of trust. Uh, they did instill confidence and reassurance to the public, particularly at the very start. As time went on, it kind of got a lot messier and trickier. Mm. But I just think it was it was just so indicative of how fed up the government were of listening to Neffet on, on what they sh- what policies they should listen to, and then how fed up Neffet were of. Yeah. <laughs> of the government being fed up with them. <laughs> yeah, well, and then more often with, with the government being fed up in, in uh, Neffet having some free reign, I suppose, to, to um, say whatever they liked on the national airwaves. And this goes back to your point, John, about civil servants not usually being um, so amenable to the media. Um, this is then the results. The result of all of this is the government deciding that all uh, communications were now going to be run centrally through the Government Information Service, which... Uh, was not supposedly intended to mean that members of Neffet were gagged, but the experience of this programme and plenty others was that even when members of Neffet were available in principle, that when it came to then getting clearance for them to come on and practice, that it was never forthcoming. And you, you, you said that during the break, that, that that was the case, and I think it was more it was more obvious to broadcast media like yourself when we're trying to get people on for interviews. But, mm. you know, I, I recall one um, Neffet member, I won't, I won't name the person, but they went on radio, I think, last spring late spring to say essentially the pub should close close for the summer you know a, a personal opinion that was out there if mm-hmm. that was clouding facts but uh, clouding the government's thinking it shouldn't have but I think there was there was a very interesting often these things come down to style if if, if people are criticising the media it's about problems within government it's nothing to do with the media we're only doing what we're supposed to do and we're only yeah. observers if you remember and I think it's fascinating and I'm sure Pandemonium the book goes into a lot of this I haven't had a chance to look at it yet mm. but I will publish this coming Thursday um, oh excellent but um, we if you think back there was different characters at the top of government at the very very beginning the, the sun was out Leo Varadkar was a Taoiseach, a very, very media-savvy leader of this country. Simon Harris, a man who has grown up with Twitter and, and, and social media, understands it very, very closely. If you remember, even symbolically, the, the two guys, Leo Varadkar, Simon Harris, uh, appeared on the rostrum with Tony Holohan, and they were all together. Clearly what had happened, and we're told from inside, that, that Simon Harris would get a hold of Tony Holland before the letter even went. Hmm. And they discussed what was going to be in the hmm. letter. Can we do this? A bit of bartering. That, by and the way, we went. is mentioned in this extract is still happening. All the focus about what's in the letter, what's in the letter, the government doesn't know because the government hasn't seen the letter. All ignoring, all overlooking the fact that routinely, and was still the case even in this instance, that the Minister for Health is told what is coming in the letter before the letter ever gets delivered. So the, the details are already in the political domain long before anyone ever gets some member of the Secretariat to put it all out on an A4 sheet. There you go. And then one must then ask, is the Minister for Health or whoever he is sharing this with very quickly seeing the political ramifications of what is in that going back in the way that Simon Harris did with, in all due respect to him. Late June, government changes. We get a new coalition. We get a new Taoiseach. The Taoiseach sets the tone of that government. Michal Martin is around an awful long time, but his ministerial career was forged before the time of social media, before the time of 24-hour news. And I felt that they 
took a long time to get a hold of the whole the whole monster that this the, the, this news handling had become. I remember another leak I got um, in. Let me look at the time scale of this. It was October, uh, I think, and they had um, they had just come up with this. So maybe September, they twenty twenty. They come up with this color coding. Um, mm. Do you remember that? Yes. That went yeah, very yeah. quickly. Yeah. And um, I got it on the Thursday night. Went in the Friday newspaper, uh, the Friday paper, uh, and online. And yeah, this, had, this was just before Omicron. So then they were going to try and outline well, back to twenty twenty. Now the oh, other okay, one, the other right. one, the color okay. coding. Right. Um, and. They had planned, the government and effort, everybody else had planned on having a big launch of this on the following Tuesday with slides and everything else for the media of the new colour coding, which, which went by the wayside, why people don't necessarily remember it. Now, how a modern administration could think that they could distribute information about a colour coding system for levels of warning, orange, red, whatever yeah. else. And they would then hold till the following Tuesday in a government made up of thousands of people. Yeah. It was just crazy. Yeah. You know, and they, they, it took them, I don't think they ever got a hold of that, uh, managing all that, how information is now distributed very quickly. Did it matter to the public? It seemed to have, there was a public outcry, if you remember when uh, Michal Lahan on RTE, I think it was the previous Stevens's day, had an awful lot of information. And there was a feeling... Yeah expressed, I think principally on social media but on talk shows like your, like your own that the public were very unhappy to hear it in this fashion. Yeah, mm. he announced to level 5 again, uh, after the yeah, color coding was, it was yeah, that was Yeah, that was uh, that would have been October 2020 I think yeah. he was the, the first reporter to get steered that the, the Tony Hulan had come back from his leave and had recommended a level, level 5, five and um, and then it all went all went haywire in that case. So uh, what we, I never understood finally very briefly yeah. was that why the Simon Harris if they were so concerned about these leaks that's not for us to determine why the Simon Harris Leo Varag or Tony Holohan um, model wasn't stuck to which was let her hand to them they immediately go into a press conference this is what we've been told to yeah. do and it, it, it killed it very quickly. Mm. Uh, I'm sure that the uh, the dynamics behind some of the changes in government and, and the way that manifested for media handling and everything else will be uh, explained at great length uh, by Jack Horgan Jones and Hugh O'Connell. Pandemonium, Power Politics and Ireland's Pandemic is published by Guild Books this coming Thursday and an extensive extract across pages 14 and 15 of today's Sunday Independent. Still a few other bits and pieces uh, to discuss with Grania and John in today's papers when we're back after this. Um, Grania, there is a few pieces in the, today's papers about uh, Mary Lou MacDonald's uh, intention to pursue a libel case against RTE. Now, we should obviously say from the outset that we are not going to repeat the claims at issue because that would be walking into precisely the same issue that RT now appeared to have with Mary Lou MacDonald. Um, but there are some suggestions that maybe this is part of a broader trend or mm. a sort of a concerted strategy by Sinn Féin. I, I don't know whether I've got a huge amount of sympathy for that view, but it is something discussed in the papers today. Well, yeah, I actually am like, I'm on the, in the same boat as yourself. Um, so there's, a, there's obviously a lot of mention of previous um, cases taken by Sinn Féin members against usually broad broadcast media but the question is whether that is a campaign by the party or else whether it is statements that are made about party members really on a, on a kind of a regular basis and that leads to naturally um, kind of legal cases and I think it is a good question the, there's a piece by Matt Cooper in the Business Post mm. and he said he makes an interesting point that if Mary Lou MacDonald on Sinn Féin's trajectory stands as the next Taoiseach of the country and with the delays in the courts the way they are you could, could have the Taoiseach being represented in court against the National Broad caster over over libel cases when she is in office. That is just like a an interesting. God, last um, week we were discussing how long the DPP is going to take, but the court <laughs> process could be an interesting <laughs> okay, delay fair. as far as that goes. Yeah, 
yeah, yeah. you know, it's just an interesting kind of thought um, experiment. But, you know, it is, it's a, um, a kind of a piece, uh, thought or a, a case that kind of raises interesting questions like, the link, the kind of the the legacy issues of Sinn Féin, that they're very much distancing themselves. They have a lot of new members that have no kind of um, historical kind of ties to uh, the atrocities of the Troubles or anything like that. And they're very much a party that is ahead in the polls because a lot of members of the public don't see them like that either. But if it is something that is constantly being brought back on the airways, they are going to take, well, they've clearly shown that they are going to take legal cases against that. Yeah. Uh, Matt Cooper in his piece in the Business Post today does make a a fairly salient point because uh, one of the arguments which is often made about whether there is or isn't a strategy by Sinn Féin to pursue these cases, you could say, well, doesn't Sinn Féin then often become the benefit of these because often settlements of significant sums are, are paid out in their name and often that is because the, the people involved have been genuinely wronged as was the case in, in a couple of uh, comments on radio made in the last couple of years but uh, Matt Cooper does write um, stemming from his own time as a newspaper editor he says that I became used to wealthy businessmen or companies using their financial power to threaten legal actions against the Sunday Tribune something also experienced in many other publications the potential cost of preparing for a court case and the costs of losing it if what was published couldn't be, pre- couldn't be proven during a trial often proved uh, prompted settlements to be agreed through gritted teeth. The decisions were commercial, he says. So basically, John, making the point that often if you do have a settlement made, it is not because the publication admits some sort of wrongdoing, just that it is the most financially prudent thing to do is to to nip it in the bud with a payment rather than allowing it to go to trial. Absolutely, but I don't think your listeners want to hear the, the hard stories of uh, media organisations de- no, dealing with fair. the courts. Mm. But, you know, that, that and it could go on and on. It is... If Sinn Féin are availing of the law to pursue people that they believe have defamed them the, um, and people think there's something wrong with that, then the law is the problem. It's 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 not necessarily Sinn Féin and, the, and our defamation laws are widely condemned um, by the EU and many other organisations as being archaic and that's that's something that that has to be dealt on a, on a, on a wider level. Sinn Féin will find and are finding scrutiny of their uh, policies and their way of doing business, which is rather different from uh, other uh, democratic parties in Ireland, um, being undergoing greater and greater scrutiny as it as the general election arrives. And tempers will fray. You know, they, they were given some given something of a buy in the last general election because wrongly the political establishment and the media. Um, probably large sections of the public didn't rate them as being a, as being a potential challenger uh, yeah. in that general election. Now they are, um, and some of the things that Sinn Féin may have gotten away with in the past, they won't necessarily get away with now. Um, you know, I, I think we're we're hamstrung in, in going into the the rights and wrongs of of of, of, of what this these this and other cases mm. involve, but Sinn Féin feel they are hard done by by the media, um, and then they must look at themselves in some areas. There was a small little incident um, in some ways in, in the Dáil last week where Pierce Doherty cited a number of um, people who um, who have died uh, due, due to um, fuel, fuel property, property, 2,800 yeah. people. Uh, uh, my colleague Louise Byrne rang the Sinn Féin press office and asked them to tell us, as other journalists did, where mm. exactly they got in this figure and they didn't interact. Again, I can tell you a whole hard luck story about how the media find it difficult to, to deal with Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin do their business differently. Mm. Um, they That's are a left-wing popul- populist party who believe they can um, um, do things differently and 
We will see, mm. and so far the polls are supporting that way well, of doing business. Which brings me to the last thing that I was going to talk about in the time that we do have left, because we've got about a minute and a half left, and that Red Sea poll shows Sinn Féin support rising to 34%, which is only a one-point rise, but it does mean Sinn Féin is now once again uh, at its most popular ever. But as we were discussing at the very start of the hour, um, also the findings of that Red Sea survey about the impact of the increased cost of living, and 50% of people saying that they either have to borrow or use their savings to pay for ordinary, everyday expenses. That seems, John, like it's going to be a big political problem coming down the tracks. Five percent people are are, str- are struggling just to make yeah. a, a make less a, confident make, about the future. But yeah. if half of people have to borrow or use their own savings just to get by every month, then when it does get to a ballot box, you wouldn't be at all surprised <laughs> if Sinn Fein do very well, would you? Well, this is this this is what Sinn Fein understands. They know that people vote in general elections on the back pocket and and you know how how they conduct their daily lives and the amount of money they have to do with it and right now Sinn Féin are 34% because of all these ancillary sorry considering all these ancillary increases in the cost of living still the highest driver of inflation and the and the highest hammer blow for I'm sure people in this studio and everywhere out there listening is still the cost of housing uh, and and now since September 2021 the cost of fuel and that neither of those do, do the government have the, the skills or the tools to tackle them and now everything else is going up because of fuel in many ways yeah the government are going to have a real problem between tack- between now and next year tackling inflation, yeah. which historically has always been difficult I, to deal with. I just with. think it's an extraordinary statistic that half of people need to borrow or are going to their own savings just to get through every month and then Absolutely. the savings run out in a couple of months' time will be in interesting places. And we're, not, we're only at the start of that crisis as well. Absolutely. Gronin A, a new political reporter with the Press Association. Thank you very much. John Lee, who's the uh, group political editor and executive editor of the Irish Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. Thank you very much. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.